Hello, welcome to another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast. Great writers making waves with the word, all in conversation with me, Liam Bishop. And today I'm joined by Charlie Bayliss, a poet from Nottingham, UK. Charlie's poems have been nominated for the Pushcart and Forward Prizes, but it's his new collection which we're discussing today, Santa Lucia, published by Invisible Hand Press. It's a collection of kaleidoscopic imagery, shape-shifting chameleon-like forms. Split into the sections day and night, Charlie takes us into a world which both never sleeps, but also never seems to wake up from a dreamlike state. When not writing poems, Charlie is either publishing them as editor of Anthropocene, or in his role as chief editorial advisor at Broken Sleep Books. He's also the Poetry Reviews editor at Review 31. Charlie, join me from Madrid. It might seem an obvious place to start, but I wanted to get an idea of how you built up this world of Santa Lucia. Um, the collection is based on a place in the real world, but why Santa Lucia? Uh, why Santa Lucia is purely because it was a neighbourhood near where I lived in Cartagena, Spain, and a nice like working class neighbourhood near the sea. I liked walking through it and there was a nice chapel um, if you went up some hills. Um, so it is a real place. But then what I'd say is, in terms of the poems and the pamphlet, they aren't necessarily rooted in the real. The museum on the edge of Santa Lucia is a real museum, but there aren't killer whales, obviously, leaping up. John Ashbury isn't there. The Elvis impersonator isn't there. Uh, Nearly all of the things, apart from Julia, who is my girlfriend and is very much real in the museum, those are the real things. And so it is a place, but place I'm writing about isn't necessarily the same place. As you said, there is some of the imagery that you have in there um, isn't real or, you know, it, it might be real somewhere in the world. You know, I think of the pink horses and even through this, I still feel like it is a collection about a place. You know, I guess in the same way that, you know, think about Keats and think about Shelley writing about, you know, places they experienced uh, and travelled to. I feel, I feel like there's somewhere within this collection, this place is enrooted within the real world. And it doesn't feel entirely real, but it's a place that you become lost in or a place that the reader becomes lost in and tries to find and witnesses, I guess, you trying to find a way through this world. I mean, obviously, place is important because the title is a place, but again... It's not necessarily a real place. It's a place, it's an imaginary place, right? And the poems, although um, they're grouped under Santa Lucia, that may not necessarily be, they may be different places and different imaginary places. The, The first two are Santa Lucia poems. And then after that, they weren't all written there some written in Madrid, some written elsewhere. I think place is important as a poet, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm a a poet of place. I guess when I'm talking about place, I guess I'm, yeah, you won't go into this collection and you won't see landmarks or, you know, places that you recognise. You're not writing about specific kind of locations or, or things from the environment, but I kind of felt like it was thematic in the sense that they were you know placed within some kind of kind of world 
and I don't know if I'm sort of impressing too much on what what the poet's art is and what a poet does and how a poet writes a collection. You know, I imagine that you don't sit down to write these all in one kind of series or what have you. But I felt like was a there was an effort to give this place some kind of logic. You're right. The um, the title was there before most of the poems. Um, and when I had a poem that I thought was um, for Santa Lucia, I'd put it in the Santa Lucia folder. So it wasn't, first of all, a way of organizing stuff. And so while I was writing this, obviously I was writing other things that weren't for it as well. But if I felt things uh, were kind of looking like Santa Lucia poems, if they worked together, I'd put them in there. And the poems that I felt were maybe lighter, uh, obviously I put in the day section and then the kind of darker stuff doesn't always work like that. Or the poems that were set at night, which the last three I think are, are all set at night. Um, they would go in there. Place was a good organizational principle. We'll talk a bit more about the day and night in a moment. And I just wanted to ask, is this different from any of the other collections you've done or pamphlets? That um, process of, you know, earmarking, I guess, for a particular... It is kind of different from the last pamphlet, and I've only done pamphlets, uh, Swimming, was me trying to be as uh, experimental as I could, kind of wanting to be S.J. Fowler. The, the, it's funny, I was thinking about the day and the night theme for one of my... My second pamphlet, Hilda Doolittle's Carl Young T-shirt, a bit of a mouthful to pronounce. Um, it's a fantastic title. <laughs> yeah, that may have been the seed of the idea for Day and Night because it opens with a poem called Morning Sun and it ends with a poem called Evening Sun. Well, let's talk then a bit more about this idea of using the day uh, and the night. One of the things it did for me is in that sense of a, you know, real and not real. And, you know, poets are obviously interested in rhythms and, and meter. Although your lines and although your poems don't necessarily have, always appear to have a kind of, you know, a regular or strict meter, that you still gave this collection a rhythm and it was a, you know, a circadian rhythm, day uh, and night. And if we think about structuring poetry and particularly your work, um, which sometimes does vary to the more lyrical and sometimes doesn't. I just wondered if, you know, if this, if this came down to a, a choice about how you constructed the actual poems themselves. The, the thing that would come first would be the poem, okay? So regardless of it being day or night or it being possibly in Santa Lucia, the idea for a poem would come uh, and I'd work on that until um, I'd seen it through, basically. And then after that, it's about assessing, well, where, where do I put this? Does this fit with this project? The way I'm always writing now, or not necessarily writing, but the way I'm editing now is always with an idea of a 10-poem sequence in mind. So it could be the first side of a pamphlet, or it could be uh, a, set, a segment of a larger collection. Um, I'll have fun grouping poems together and it, that for me is very much part of my editing process now is thinking about what fits together and what doesn't 
Um, and so Santa Lucia, uh, obviously, I was always uh, thinking about what worked together and what didn't. And the kind of flow of the pamphlet, I briefly went to UEA uh, and dropped out. But while I was there, um, Sophie Robinson said an interesting thing to me, which had never occurred to me before which was about the pacing of a collection. So you can't just have three very long poems. You can't just hit the reader over the head with, you know, three very long poems. They need a breathing space. So that's why you'll have a long poem and then a short poem. Uh, and I'd never thought about that. It seems very simple, um, but that was kind of revelatory for me. So pace, pacing. Mm. And then you think about great albums that you like, and it's the same. You have to curate, things have to work well together. You can't just, you know, have some kind of greatest hits collection. There has to be a, a flow <laughs> of ideas and maybe weak poems are part of that, as much as strong poems. Um, it's all a, a big tapestry. There's a kind of feel to the, the poems. And I don't know if it comes up from that kind of romantic sense of, you know, music and 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 kind of having feel about this album, like it is uh, something that you you know you you pick up and you'd have a, and I don't know if it's through the imagery or the kind of references to sort of there's kind of a lot of references to fifties America. I don't think it's exclusive to this pamphlet and the way that you repeat some of that imagery across poems. I wonder what your choices were within that. Did it come back to? You know the editing process. Did you did you notice that you had these repeating images, or were these inserted after to make this feel like a whole kind of, you know, a tapestry as you call it? Definitely the latter. When when I'm editing, um, repetition is a is a trick. It's like a, it's a skill. I think the human mind it naturally enjoys repetition, um, and so. For Santa Lucia and for other pamphlets, I always do try and, if I see something like, um, you said Grace Kelly's eyes comes up in uh, Madonna and then in a poem in the second half of the pamphlet, I just put it back in. And that, that, that would have been when I was looking at the pamphlet as a whole and thinking, what little things can I do to make this better uh, and more cohesive and more of a pamphlet? And it is picking up little things and then you, you copy them and maybe you drop them into another poem. And it doesn't always work, but I think um, it's, a, it's not very difficult to do. And it's a, an easy way maybe of, of improving or making something more cohesive. When, you know, when poets and when writers repeat things and sometimes it happens, you know, unconsciously, sometimes it is, you know, a case of... Um, just the writer process, we repeat phrases, return to phrases, you know, uh, but but here you are consciously then taking an image and placing it elsewhere, as opposed to it's, it's you know, kind of unconscious. A great poem I read where I guess I, I learned to do that, Matthew Welton has a poem about wasps and throughout the number poems, which is an amazing collection by Matthew Welton, he does, he repeats uh, lines, he plays with, the images, they come back, they go away. Um, the wasps, like they fly towards the jam, they fly away, they fly to the window. And it's kind of hypnotic in a way. I think 
mostly I saw in Matthew Welton and I thought, wow, this really works, this repetition thing. Uh, and of course, Matthew Welton is from Nottingham, like me. So this, that's another thing in his favour in my book. <laughs> yeah, Charlie uh, representing uh, the Nottingham poets. Uh, Matthew wrote, it was um, Squid Squad, wasn't it, as well? That yeah, Squid Squad. I love the title. Sounds like a Wellington boot um, kind of landing in a puddle. <laughs> Squid Squad. It's the kind of thing that you can't really read and comprehend. It's not like um, a first-person narrative poem. Like It's not a Simon Armitage or a Caroline Duffy first-person narrative poem. I'm not besmirching. You can have very fine first-person narrative poems, but that kind of uh, mathematical poem does something to your brain that you can't initially comprehend. Mm. Um, and you can see it in maybe some Sam Riviere poems as well. Um, there's just like tricks with with language. Well, it's what, it? for me. It's what you said. Um, you said it's hypnotic. I guess all, you know, poetry on some level is meant to be, you know, read aloud, but is the return of the phrases, the return of the imagery, and the, the fact as well is that some of this imagery is very, very... Um, I, I hope listeners just go out and, if they haven't done so already, just, just read some of this, because the images and the colours that you use, the kind of kaleidoscopic imagery. That, that would be more important for my craft than the repetition. Um and yeah, please do um, buy my uh, pamphlet because um, I don't earn very much money. But no, you're absolutely right. I I do I put a lot of effort into the imagery, um, and it is important to me. Um, and that that effort is not necessarily mental effort. It's kind of a strange kind of effort where you might. I can't do this anymore because I'm diabetic, but you might eat a lot of Mars bars for a, uh, a kind of heightened sugary feeling. Or I wouldn't prescribe taking drugs, but maybe you could take drugs um, to get into an altered state. And yeah, various states of mind. I'm naturally quite crazy as a person, so luckily... I don't have to do too much to trigger some kind of heightened state, but um, imagery is is important and um, more than repetition. As a reader, and I guess you know, and as a as a as a critic, it's too easy to kind of go. These poems are about you know it's dreamlike imagery. So so you could apply that to any kind of poem. I think there's a lot of poems that do sort of conjure a sense of dreamlike states, even though there is actually a poem where you seem to explicitly talk about the process of falling asleep and having a dream or you're asleep and you have your mouth open and these images are kind of coming. This kind of sense of an altered state, why was some of it around sort of, it felt like 50s America or this kind of Americana imagery. And that's some of they have, you have used before. Uh, I mean, in Hilda Doolittle, is wearing Cal Young's t-shirt, yeah. for instance. I was, th I was thinking about that. Um... Um, I do like Golden Age Hollywood. I don't know when, maybe for some people, Golden Age Hollywood is the 30s or 40s. Um, but I do like that kind of era. I do like um, 
Grace Kelly, Marilyn Monroe, these, those kind of iconic stars. Um, and again, it, it's not necessarily the place or the era, um, but it's kind of what that era evokes. Um, so rather than it, it being Grace Kelly's eye, it's more for me the feeling of what Grace Kelly's eye in a poem evokes. Is would it be fair to say then that Santa Lucia it's a kind of it seems like an environment for all of these things or instances or not even you know it's sort of it feels like a place of composite parts of particularly significant you know cultural references um things from i don't know from from your from your life or um you know you've got the talking about the uh, the song the hook on the song uh the feeling of you know grace kelly's eyes the elvis impersonator these very particularly pertinent things that evokes a, a set of feelings or what maybe i try to do is try to use like not when you have when you're making a cake you have to use a certain number of ingredients right um Maybe what I'm trying to do is just throw all of the ingredients in uh, and see like what happens. And like that sounds like quite a bad idea to me um, when I say it out loud, but it's kind of, I have, I'm interested in, in lots of things, modern art, I'm interested in, in music, I like dance. Um, I, mean, I mean, I'm probably no more interesting than most people, but I'm very interested in the world. Uh, and the world is a very big place. And so I do try and put quite a lot into the poems, but I do like to wear influences on my sleeve. I mean, you referenced John Ashbury. Uh, some of the kind of phraseology feels sort of very Ashbury. I got a sense of Frank O'Hara. Is there any others? All of the references uh, that are important to me are more or less there. Like Sean Bonney is is there in name. Sophie Robinson is uh, is quoted from, uh, as you say, Ashbury's in that poem. Um, I have other poems which have O'Hara in, which people, or well, one person got annoyed about in a review because apparently there are too many poems to uh, mention him. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think I think it, it's all kind of there. Is there anyone else? I don't think I've put um, Salima Hill. I really love Salima Hill. I really love Luke Kennard. So yeah, those those are two I love. Um, and Chelsea Minnis, I don't think I mentioned in the pamphlet. The Museum on the Edge of Santa Lucia, for Julia. The Elvis impersonator wearing a t-shirt which says, I heart my wife, watching his watch, reading A Brief History of Time. John Ashbury writes in clouds of entropy, of polar bears with the bluest eyes, playing in the blue snow of Neptune, of beached seals hypnotized by global warming. The police lend me novels which drive me mad, the police lend me novels about romance. Hush. My novels are classified.
my novel begins. Julio is beautiful. She works in a museum on the edge of Santa Lucia. I meet her on the pier where the orcas leap over our heads in beautiful conspiracies. Convex mirrors flipped vertical. Concave mirrors flipped horizontal. My novel ends. I'm sorry for my moments of madness. I'm sorry for the hurt I caused the moon. We must love ourselves in the dark moments when we need love the most. The police litter the pier with fashionable novels. The police are tiresome. The police arrest the Elvis impersonator for his extravagant belt of blue. John Ashbury writes of the coastline, swinging from his necklace, of a million butterflies launched into pink and white clouds, before they were pink and white clouds. It's a set of poems that are about poetry, and I mean that in the sense that it's not a kind of self-referential. And you talk about, you know, these are first-person narrative poems, and in a way they are a kind of reflexive, you know, look at what might be as you, you know, I guess as you say your influences and but they are there are poems about poetry and without being a kind of um you know meta you know meta kind of commentary on poetry and and the craft of being a poet and it feels like you are kind of reflecting you know you kind of I feel like within it we sort of see Charlie Bayliss the poet and we also see Charlie Bayliss uh you know the person that's not the poet. I don't know if you 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 split those up so so rigidly, but you kind of reference this idea of um, reflecting on the rhetorical walls, which occurs a couple of times. And I got it, there's a quote that I always remember from from Hilda Doolittle uh, pamphlet, um, and you say talking about Charlie Bellis, his presence on Google outweighs my presence as Google. He is as real as a fountain pen as a burning car. Yeah, that's a protest poem, um, because too many people, you've never done this, too many people spell my surname with two S's. Um, and so that, that poem's titled My Name Only Has One S, and is about supposedly whoever the person that has two S's, uh, Charlie Bayliss, who is, who I think it's still true to this day, Charlie Bayliss with two S's poems, you Google that, uh, and if you Google with one S, you won't uh, get me. So I am now Charlie Bayliss with two S's to some people. And that, it's kind of weird. I quite like that weirdness in the same way that when the bank write to me with two S's about my debts, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> So you can't really, you can't really, uh, going back to the question, persona is uh, an important thing. And I do like to think about it. It is part of the craft. And I do think maybe I do have kind of this persona in the poem that isn't actually me. Uh, not always. Um, sometimes, hopefully, I'm more honest and just myself. But that kind of, is it the fourth wall that filmmakers talk about? That is something I like to, to play with sometimes and have Charlie Bayliss uh, enter the poem is, I think it's quite funny. A lot of 
other poets I like do that. Luke Kennard, for example, uh, inserts himself in some poems in a funny way. Uh, Aaron Kent, in his collection, the opening poem, has him in uh, in the third person, editors talking to him. So it's a cool thing to do. When fi- I mean, when fiction writers do it, it causes a kind of... Um... It seems to cause an absolute uproar. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's more room for it in, you know, for 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 a poet. I felt like it seemed to centre around this idea of presence, um, and about this idea of both being there and not. You reference Camus in a poem called "The Stranger," and obviously refers to his novel as well. Um, and that's a novel about someone who doesn't really register with emotions or the situation and the context which is in. Um, and then in Come As You Are, I'm particularly struck by this sense of you having to, trying to grapple with the application of poetry while also writing about a, you know, a particularly emotional moment which centers around um, the poet and, and um, editor of Broken Sleep Books, Aaron Kent. Yeah, y- your poems are very kind of, there's a kind of joy to them, there's a frivolity, there's a play to them. I wonder if this was a sense of a, a more of a deeper set of emotions coming through. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I think I've always been quite a frivolous poet. Um, particularly, you mentioned Hilda Doolittle pamphlet. It was very frivolous. And I think that's something I lack and have maybe tried to address in Santa Lucia by... I think it comes with age as well. You you tend to think about things a bit more. Um, and Albert Camus, um, as a teenager, I did my French A-level coursework. I really liked Albert Camus um, and the existentialism. That that dislocation of kind of society has a kind of you're expected to react a certain way to big moments. Uh, it could be like your mother dying in The Stranger, his mother dies and he doesn't know how he feels. And maybe society, people would think, oh, this guy's an asshole. He, he should be really sad about his mother dying. But like, what if you don't feel the same way that other people feel? Where does that leave you? It leave, I imagine it would leave you in a quite a confused place. And then, um, Come As You Are, the, the poem for Aaron um, was one where um, I was kind of very worried writing it. And because it was still touch and go. I mean, for people who don't know, Aaron Kent had a brain hemorrhage and was in hospital. And so this was written, started writing maybe two or three days after this news and him still still being in an unstable state. And I knew that I wanted to make it really good for him. And also I knew um, they would always have an emotional anchor. So it was maybe free in terms of the imagery to go over the top. Um, Because there's the genuine friendship and feeling there. So maybe um, I had more of a license to to go into the the wild imagery that I love so much. Yeah, why do you call it um, over the top? What, you know, what's over the top about it? 
I just think um, it's what other other people have said, or um, it's maybe my own kind of self-editing sometimes. And I mean, what you read in Santa Lucia has been edited. Maybe it was over the top. Uh, like you can have, you can be hit over the head over and over and over and over again. Another favorite poet of mine that I haven't mentioned here, uh, Lindsay Bird, has amazing imagery throughout. And she can like hit you over the head again and again and again. But I don't know if I if I really have that skill. So I do have to tone it down sometimes. And again, I think if you do just do the imagery too much, the emotional core of the poem, the thing that I'm working on or trying to get into the poems a bit more, um, in a bit more depth, I think that can go missing if you if you just go for imagery. Obviously, something with a with a, a stronger, more emotional core to it. Um, are you kind of pulling further away from it then when you are writing it? Do you feel like you are pulling away from that in the way that you you sort of write about it or I mean how you know I guess I'm quite does the poetry give you access to those feelings or is it the other way around you know we think we're talking about the stranger and you know getting access to those emotions really difficult question again these are intellectual questions and um it's an easy thing to say but it's very different poem to poem so some poems I could, I'll, I'll have the strong feeling and I'll, I'll be able to, to put down some, some emotion. But sometimes I write all the time. Yeah, sometimes I don't have access to the strong emotion. So it will be kind of a more aesthetic poem. Well, I think it's, I think it's interesting that you say it's an intellectual question. And I guess maybe the way I ask sort of intellectual, but it's... I guess I'm trying to ask more about the kind of non-intellectual aspects of writing poetry and the more kind of, you know, emotional or maybe even bodily, I don't know, aspects of writing a poem. I I think I'm kind of wary uh, in a way of emotions because stuff that I think is quite bad poetry is for me the kind of bluntly emotional stuff poems that don't really explore a feeling but just tell you how somebody feels I don't really get much uh, out of that kind of a poem so emotion it has to be for me dealt with in a, a fairly subtle or nuanced way and also I as a person am not really very forthcoming with my emotions but I, I guess I do have some repression of emotion about me as a person and I think it's only natural that that would be reflected in the poems and yeah some I can see like in some ways I go to a great length to avoid emotion and that could be where the imagery is comes from as well so I just think it's it's a it's a tricky thing and imagine um I'm quite a romantic poet um and love poetry is being done since the dawn of time. So how do you bring a new angle to a love poem unless you're Luke Kennard? Uh, 
Definitely. I mean, yeah, definitely. And what I find interesting is that you are romantic. In the, I mean, obviously you reference your girlfriend in here, but I think you're romantic in the sense of the way you sort of approach some of your poems and the kind of, you know, we've talked about the fifties references and the kind of, the kind of feelings you get from those. And if it feels like you're kind of romanticizing those in a way that, you know, you're kind of giving a platform to them. Um, but also there's another side to this. And I think there is a, what I noticed that you reference quite a lot is uh, prophets and gods. I think that's a good point you make. And it's something that no one else has ever really mentioned, but I do uh, consciously write. And it, it is only a recent thing, uh, I guess in Santa Lucia onwards it is having maybe not religious and I don't, really go for the word spiritual either um but kind of metaphysical um questioning some metaphysical questioning um it, it's becoming more important to me and the funny thing is uh, my mum she's retired now but she was a priest she was first of all a french teacher and then when i was 14 she became a priest um my dad is a militant atheist and so i've had Wow. <laughs> quite a con conflicted I guess you could say upbringing in terms of religion but have um, always been around I went to Sunday school I'm not a Christian myself um, I'm agnostic I would say but I've always been around religious iconography and uh, and stuff like that and I do think these are things worth thinking about I wouldn't want to read any poet who hadn't questioned their their place in the universe i mean just come as you are it's on the page but apricot lakes um you know dreaming of low clouds violet dust pharaohs studying mysterious crates um chameleons uh brain zipping down the clown lanes snapping at a million fireflies although it's not necessarily in that poem but when you come to a, a prophet or a god there's this sort of it kind of felt like there was a kind of sort of inhibiting presence, something that was raining some of this kind of wildness or colourfulness back. And I don't know if that is you know, what you were talking about or not, but it just, it just struck me. Yeah, I think there is... Um, I think there's something to what you said, like... Um, I'm not sure... Recently, my grandma uh, wasn't happy that I had swearing in my poems. And I'm not going to censor myself, but maybe there is some kind of guilt uh, hovering. The religious stuff is kind of that guilt I have over being too um, decadent. Uh, and there's that kind of, I don't know if this, that kind of pop art element to it, you know, kind of playing on the repetition of those images and the colours and the kaleidoscopic sense of them as well. And the way you kind of repeat your images, I don't even have any influence from... Um, you know, kind of pop out or 70s kind of art or anything? Um, there probably is. I am a big fan of modern art. I'm not an expert, but I do go to exhibitions and I do love galleries. Um, art galleries are great places for poems to be born. And yeah, modern art I find so uh, revitalising the, the creative ideas that come out of nowhere. And... 
I hate this, the, the trope that people say, oh, I could have done that thing. Uh, and it's often things that people could never have done. Um, like um, how many people could saw a shark in half and put it into a case of formaldehyde um, or do the same to a cow? Not many people. So <laughs> The image that came to mind was, you know, Warhol and the famous images of um obviously Marilyn Monroe and just the kind of colour of them as well. Um in your you know, your poetry is very colourful and it plays on these kind of, you know, I guess iconography to an extent. I kind of felt like I know as I went, you know, I went back to your early stuff as well. And I don't like to apply this word to, you know, A, because who am I to say what is and wasn't, but just as a kind of it feels like there is a bit like you were sort of accessing some kind of deeper emotions and putting that on the page, which didn't say you wouldn't do that before, the kind of maturity to it. Um, it's definitely something I was, I was trying to do. Um, at the same time, I'm a little bit conscious of not wanting to lose kind of the sense of fun and the frivolity mm. of stuff like Hilda Doolittle's Carl Young t-shirt. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's a hard balancing act. And as well, I guess I have to think about a potential reader and what does the reader want? Uh, maybe a, a bit of both. Um, but you're right. I, I was definitely trying to, to think a bit deeper for Santa Lucia. And I'm glad that you, you noticed that. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Um, it rewards, you know, I mean, like all, all literature is rewarded by rereading and... Um, be in this kind of world and explore it and um, just sort of take your time, I guess, which you kind of, you know, yeah. it's not, it doesn't feel like a, you know, like a dangerous environment that you're creating. It's a, even though there's that kind of deeper kind of sense to it, it's a kind of world that you kind of want to be in and explore, which you, some of the poems you are kind of literally exploring. Yeah. It's nice to hear. I think if anything, it's a sum of its parts, right? And um, we've talked about Sophie Robinson, Matthew Welton, Sean Bonney, uh, Frank O'Hara, John Ashbery. I think if a poet reads uh, widely and reads and is passionate about what they read, then usually good stuff um, comes out and hopefully it has with Santa Lucia, but I've, I've certainly done my homework. I've been reading nonstop. This is what um, I read your interview actually with Andrew McMillan and he said, uh, a similar thing, didn't he? He doesn't have to write every day, but he has to read every day. Yeah, it's funny because years ago, I read an interview with him which said, uh, you need to be reading 100 poems a day. I was like, well, that's quite shocking because that's a lot. And I thought, well, I'll have to try. And I don't. Uh, and apparently he doesn't stick to that edict either. Um, but I do think that is a good aspiration. Um, and as well as not just the number, but targeted reading, I think it's important to read stuff that you're passionate about. Um, people often say, on the other hand, it's good to read poets you don't like. I'm not really sure why you would want to if you don't like them. I, I read stuff that I like, uh, which fortunately is is 90% of the stuff I read. I do really love poetry. And yeah, 100 poems a day, Andrew McMillan, you can see from his poetry how good it is. Um, 
the reward of all that work he's put into Santa Lucia is out now. It's available from Invisible Hand Press. Uh, Charlie Bayliss, thank you very much for joining me and coming along to discuss more about your poetry. Um, it's been great. It's been exciting. And, you know, as I and many other listeners will look forward to hearing where you go next. But for now, Charlie, thank you very much. Thank you, Liam. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks again to Charlie for joining me on the Rippling Pages podcast. And of course, my thanks to you for joining me as well. I do hope you'll join me next time. I'm going to be joined by not only a writer, but a translator as well. Amelia Fryer will be joined by Zoe Perry as they discuss the writing and translation of Sevastopol, published by Lolly Editions. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with the Rippling Pages podcast, you can do so via social media at rippling underscore pages, and that's for both Twitter and Instagram. And do drop us a message if you enjoyed the episode at ripplingpagespod at gmail.com. That's ripplingpagespod at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>